Hello and welcome to Open Door Films. Before I talk about my guest today, I'm going to briefly mention the sponsors of this podcast. The first one is Fountain, which is a podcasting app that allows you to listen to your favorite podcast creators, but the twist is you're going to actually earn Bitcoin while you listen to them. That's right, in addition to being able to send Satoshis their way, you can actually earn Satoshis on your own time. And that's a great thing because you're, you're being rewarded for your own time, and I think anybody who listens to a podcast which can be very time-consuming and addictive given that they offer a lot more knowledge than traditional legacy media. I think you should be rewarded for your own time. So just click on the uh, fountain link I left down below. Sorry, tongue twist there, but anyway, I left a link for, for the fountain app for you to download it, and within a matter of minutes, you can start earning some extra money on the side while listening to the very people you admire on a creative level. And speaking of creativity, that's where the second sponsor of this podcast comes into play, that being Anchor. Now, I'm sure plenty of you listening to this podcast or many other podcasts are probably thinking you can do a podcast of your own. Well, I say go for it. And Anchor simplifies that because one of the hassles of creating a podcast is that you got to distribute it across every platform out there. Well, Anchor simplifies that because all you got to do it is just simply click on the anchor.fm link, download Anchor, record yourself, and then publish an episode, and within a matter of minutes, your podcast episode will be spread across every platform out there, whether we're talking Apple, Spotify, Lisbon, Fountain, Curiocaster, Podfreeze, every podcasting platform that you can think of or haven't thought about just yet, because there are a lot of them, which is kind of insane, but enlightening, because it pretty much shows how much podcasting is exploding. And you know, I think for those of us who are podcasters, we can contribute to that by speaking about something like Anchor, which acknowledges the many other platforms out there and how it can be they can be fully utilized. Although I do believe that personally, Fountain will overtake Apple and Spotify because I mean, a podcasting platform that lets you earn money while you listen to the very people you admire—that's hard to be. It's hard to find a deal breaker in that in in that scenario. Now, let me talk about my guest today, Aaron Baer. Aaron is a writer, director, slash filmmaker. I mean, they pretty much go hand in hand, so sorry for the little screw up there, Aaron, if you're listening. And he was just also, he's also just a very humble human being because I really enjoyed our discussion today. We mostly spoke about his work in documentary filmmaking, and two of his films are, are actually, well, there are tra- I've left links to trailers down below. One of them, Finding Kim. He's already completed, and right now, and his recent film, Yes I Am, the Rick Whalen story, is, has already wrapped up its festival run, and it would will be released in in a matter of months. But he was just very fascinating to speak about to speak with. Sorry, tongue twist there. But what I really enjoyed about our conversation was not just the fact that he, not just the fact that he went underwent a very difficult journey in crafting these stories and the significance they played in shaping his views on these particular subjects because finding Kim is a is basically the personal journey of someone transitioning from becoming a, a woman and turning into a man basically it centers on the issues of transgenderism which I think is a notable topic to discuss with an open mind and then there's Yes, I am the Rick Whalen story, which was one of the which was one of the driving forces of our conversation because it centers on Rick Whalen, who was both who was a philanthropist and one of the one of the early people who started Microsoft. But 
many, and what was interesting was that he was one of those silent voices you don't hear about. He's basically that genius under the curtain, if that's a perfect way of phrasing it. Because we know about Bill Gates. We know about all the we know about the CEOs, the founders of the many tech companies out there, and the genius and the geniuses they were. But we don't know about the people. A lot of, there are a lot of people we just don't know who were involved in those projects. And now, sometimes some people are silenced, and sometimes some people willfully just like to keep themselves anonymous. And Rick Wayland was that type of person. He was basically that silent genius who played a big role in the formation of Microsoft. And what I loved in my discussion with Aaron was that not only was was that was he a quiet individual, but also a person who suffered greatly because of a lot of doubts he struggled with, and and especially with the fact that it was very difficult for him to come out as a gay man and at the same time just just the story and how he was discovered was very fascinating and I don't want to spoil anything because I guess I, I myself have an affinity for that kind of story the silent genius who nobody knows about but willfully keeps their anonymity because they're more focused on what defines them and their talents and based on what Aaron told me about Rick Whalen and the conversations he had with Bill Gates and many other people from Microsoft only made me admire and 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 actually hold some level of anticipation because I am curious to watch this film when I get a chance. Anyway, I hope I haven't butchered too much of in promoting my guest and for those of for those of you who are intellectually curious, check out the links to Aaron's profile, his information, and the links to his and the links to the trailers of his movies. And please support the independent work of filmmakers like Aaron, who are making a difference in terms of independent cinema and somewhat decentralizing the the old traditional idea of the studio system, which me and him both agree is kind of dying out. Anyway, enough of my babbling. I hope you all enjoyed this episode and. Uh, well, that's enough of my babbling. Enjoy the show. Yeah, but before we start, I want to know, what is that tattoo? Uh, this tattoo is, uh, have you ever seen Hedwig and the Angry Inch? No. Is that something Harry Potter based? No, um, it was actually before Harry Potter. Well, sort of at the same, uh, Hedwig... Uh, and the Angry Inch is a film about a, uh, let's see, it, it started off as a play, but it's kind of the, well, I'll just say my tattoo is the animation sequence from Hay Hedwig and the Angry Inch. So if you want something to watch this weekend, uh, put it on your list. I'm, I'm a fan of the chest-based tattoos, but uh, that's another topic because I think I think there's something fascinating about the chest-based ones. I guess because I'm a fan of Conor McGregor, and I just find that kind of artwork fascinating. But yeah, yeah now I've started the recording, so I, I guess I want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to do this interview. As I said, this is a totally unscripted podcast interview, and uh, just start by telling us who you are and just a little bit about your work, and we'll go from there. That sounds good. Well, uh, my name is Aaron Bear. I'm a filmmaker. Uh, currently based out of Palm Springs, California, uh, splits my time between here and LA. Uh, I just moved here from Seattle after spending 15 years in Seattle. Um, was sort of looking for a change of life and 
uh, work brought me down here quite often. So uh, made the leap. I'm a hot two months in to, uh, to the area, but enjoying it so far and settling in. Um, but yeah, while I was in Seattle, I found a really great tight-knit film community there and uh, did a lot of commercial work. I worked for Microsoft and Starbucks and Amazon and did a lot of their TV commercials. And then uh, at the same time, I, I kind of needed, I had a need to fulfill this other part of me that, um, which led me to my first documentary film called Finding Kim uh, that I started in 2000 and 12 about a transgender friend of mine who transitioned at 50 years old and I just documented his his process and and day to day and that took almost four a little over four years to make got to premiere it at Seattle International Film Fest went through a bunch of festivals ended up selling it to the orchard and it that film lives and breathes on its own and through that film I started making uh, the film I just finished called Yes, I Am, the Rick Weiland story about uh, one of the founders of Microsoft uh, and queer pioneer Rick Weiland. Um, and this is somebody who remains pretty elusive in, um, in the shadows, but it, on purpose. He didn't want to be known. Uh, very shy, very complicated person. Um, I mean, this is someone like genius level brain. Like this is someone who wrote some of like the first pieces of code. Um, with Bill Gates and Paul Allen. I noticed that. I saw the trailer for that film before I, before this interview, and I was rather fascinated by your own fascination with him. And did, But go ahead and finish, and I'll ask some questions, because that yeah. get my attention. Yeah, he... Um, and I, I was approached uh, by a friend of his um, when I was showing my last film, uh, named Mike, he's Michael Fela. He appears in the film, and he uh, said, hey, I have an idea for a documentary. Um, I went over to his house. He told me about Rick. And I naively thought like, oh, you know, well, first I thought, is this a story I could tell? Is this a story I want to tell? Can I tell it authentically? Um, and the more I got to know Rick, the more I found so much of myself in, in him. And the things that he accomplished are, are so monumental and I can't even express uh, how much of the world he changed. Um, and the fact that no one knows who he is, is, is staggering, but, um, but also someone who suffered a great deal, um, as well. And he, I mean, Rick ended up, I mean, it's, there's no spoiler here. It's like, you can look it up online. I mean, Rick took his own life in 2006 and, you know, this was someone who had everything on paper. Um, but, and probably one of the richest people in the world, but uh, money, success, uh, a little bit of fame, tons of friends, and it's, it goes to show you that it's still sometimes not enough, and mental health is, is very real, and um, so through that process, the making of, of Yes, I Am, I started my own mental health journey because how, uh, what an ego I would have if I, if I didn't, if I would would have thought like everything in my own, my own life is okay and at the time like it definitely was not and you know I'm making a film about someone who who went through a lot and struggled a lot and uh and I wanted the film to be good and it was it was interesting making a film about someone I've never met before and uh I naively thought it would take a year and uh because I thought oh well Rick 
probably would have gave you know a ton of interviews and I could pull from a fuck well, like a shitload of stock footage and um and interviews that ambiguous yes uh there were no interviews um that he ever gave um I, I scoured the earth I went to the Microsoft archive I went to the Stanford archive where all of his um materials were donated to I went to like AIDS organizations and foundations and so many places. And the only, the only video that you see of Rick in the film was the only thing I could find. And that was a mysterious VHS tape that was donated with some, uh, with some clothing uh, to the uh, Mohai in Seattle. And the Mohai is the museum of history and industry. Um, and they had all of Rick's Rick stuff uh, to a certain degree. And, there was this tape and they said, we don't know, really know what's on it. We haven't digitized it yet. And they said, you know, you're going to be taking a risk. And I was like, I don't, I don't mind. I was like, I'll see what's on it. And it was a, a boat cruise, a gay boat cruise in uh, Seattle in like 1984 or five. And I, it's like two hours long and I'm just sitting there watching it. And there he was. And I was already three years into making the film. So oh. it was, it was, I, I wet when I saw him because it, it, I had never seen him move or, you know, articulate in any sort of way. Um, you could say he was like an entity coming, coming to life because yeah, it's interesting that you, you speak about him in such a sense, like he was this mystery rather than a fully fleshed out human being. And I hope that doesn't devalue him because no. I often, I remember once listening to this podcast, must see films and he, the, I actually interviewed the host of that podcast a few about two months ago, and we briefly mentioned Terrence Malick and how there are no interviews of him that he's become somewhat of a mystery and entity yeah. himself. That just the idea of meeting him would probably be bizarre. I, I I can't I couldn't imagine. I think it would be an even more greater challenge to find out any information on him, given that he wasn't involved in technology and I don't. Well, know. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, in making a film about who wanted to, didn't want the limelight uh, and Mike Shaper, who was one of his partners, he goes, this is going to be a really hard film for you to make, Aaron, and I'm just going to give you the heads up. And I said, I was up for the challenge and boy, it, uh, what a challenge it was. But it also, Rick Weiland also changed my life in so many ways, so many profound ways that uh, are personal yet uh, like how I carry myself in this world and uh, who I am and the values that I, that I, that I carry now. Um, yeah, it's, you know, starting with one, making a documentary, I would say making a, making a film is hard. Uh, making a documentary is even harder and you have to be invested in it 100% and you know, unless you're making like March of the Penguins or something, like there isn't a gigantic return on investment of, of documentary film. Um, but, you know, it's, I love it. And it's a passion and being able to tell someone else's story or uh, about a subject and educate people has been one of the things that I have found along the way that I actually like doing. Um, and that was kind of this hidden surprise of, that I learned about myself along the way. Um, you know, we're all in this sort of like journey, become trained to become these more fully realized human beings. And 
now I'm not perfect, but I, I, I felt, I feel better now coming, finishing this film and coming out the other side. It's interesting that you bring up the idea of a documentary being more difficult than a film. Not, do you mean that just from a narrative angle or even just from a, or just the, the creative, the creative, the technically creative process? Uh, I suppose the, the narrative angle, you know, you can make a fluff, I can make a fluff piece about anything. Um, you know, it's I, a refrigerator, the history of insert whatever here. But as a filmmaker, like, do you actually care about it? Do you give a shit about it? Um, and I feel if the answer is no, then, you know, you're going to, it's going to be the, you know, the, the sort of the ancient aliens on the history channel. And while those are entertaining, and I definitely indulge in those, I think if you want to truly say something with film, um, you have to, you have to really love the, the subject that you're, you're making the film about. And, um, and within that, it's, it's difficult because you care so much and you want to make it, I wanted to make a good film, not only for myself, but for Rick, for his friends, for Bill Gates, for Paul Allen, for Microsoft, for all the, the organizations that he's affected. Like I was almost the, this person that was the conduit trying to like the, tell the story, Rick's story, and put it out there in, into the world, and while also educating the, uh, the world about Rick and, and his accomplishments. Um, you know, we all have this duality in our lives, and Rick had lots of different versions of himself, and I would meet people along the way of, you know, you start chasing that, you know, the carrot that you think is going to be something, and then it ends up being nothing, but um, this person will introduce you to the next person and the next person and the next person. And then finally, you'll find like a small nugget, like a small piece of information that you had, that you needed that is, that is paramount to the story and that you use. But it's a lot of detective work. Um, I always say, and especially this one, it was like you kind of alluded to it before. It, it, it kind of felt like I was cracking open a cold case. Yeah, it sounds, it sounds like a like like a lot of complexity. And uh, would you describe Rick Wayland as a very complex man? A very complex and very complicated person. Um, but at times, like a very like he had this, these this core group of friends, and I think uh, there's a lot of uh, like mysteriousness and this version, these different versions of Rick. You know, he was this very buttoned up sort of computer programmer by day and then he could let loose at night and then but by himself he had all of these woes and all of these worries that he never communicated out to the world or to friends or to other people um and i was incredibly lucky to find his daily journals that he kept from dating back from 1975 uh and I want to say that I had planned that, but it was almost like the universe delivered it to me. Um, I had went to Stanford, had a tremendous amount of his archives, and I got to, they allowed me to come down there, sift through his archives, and I, I got these boxes, and they were just labeled books or something, and there were all of his journals, and it dawned on me, I'm like, well, this is his voice. This is his personal voice, and uh I started to read through them, but I only had a limited amount of time. And I'm like, well, how am I going to be able to 
to read all of these. So I had to spend $10,000 and digitize all of his journals. And then I had the process of uh, reading all of his journals um, and then synthesizing those down into bits and pieces. Like this is important in his life. This is less important. And then um, I had a couple producers read them as well. And then I crafted sort of a, how would this fit within the film? How would this like be a through line within the film? And how do I use it? How do I, how do I now, how do I use now that I have these, these pieces, how do I make it come to life? And, you know, I, I had this brilliant uh, an, uh, animator named Neely who we connected and I said, these are the things I want animated uh, from, from his journals. And then uh, during that time, uh, World of Wonder, Fenton and Randy had come on board as an executive producer. And I said to them, or they actually said to me, they said, wouldn't it be great to get like a really famous person to read the journals? And I said, yeah, that would be awesome. So I went back to my hotel and I made a list of, of five out gay actors. Like that was important to me to, to read. And um, Zachary Quinto was at the top and through just- oh, He's a great actor. Yeah, it's just how, how weird the world can work sometimes. Somehow I got connected to him. And it was kind of a, uh, like a, a little bit of, you know, a mountain of agents and stuff, but I finally, got to the person who was sort of, you know, managing the day to day and they said, write him a letter. So I, I wrote Zach a letter and I said, Hey, here's what, who, here's who I am. Here's the film I'm making. Here's who Rick was. Here's why I think you would be perfect. Please say yes. And he said, yes. And he said, yes, sight unseen, like hadn't seen a frame of the film and he just did it like on his own like belief in that it would be something great and this was uh, during the height of COVID so after all the documents were signed and lawyers were involved uh they said hey he can do it on Thursday and I lived in Seattle and it was Tuesday so I had to find and this was the height of COVID so I had to find uh, an open studio that was operating and um get down to LA so I I did I found it all um and went to uh, LA, recorded him, and he had it uh, so dialed in. And so like, I didn't, there was very little direction. Like he understood Rick's voice and um, the, and Rick's sorrow and moments of happiness. And it wasn't like, hi, I'm Rick Wyland. It's like, he, he already knew that how to, to uh, deliver Rick in a way that was very true. So it was that part, working with Zach was amazing. I can, I can, it's very interesting that you mentioned how it happened in the height of COVID because it seems like COVID-19 itself has changed our perceptions of depression and mental health in many ways, given the, the impact isolation had on many people. And uh, I wanted, out of curiosity, has it, has not just the doc, the work you did on the documentary, but also the timing of which you were working on it during COVID, has that shifted your own perceptions on depression to another extent or... Well, yeah, absolutely. There's, I mean, there's no way around that working on a film about someone who had depression. Are you still there? Yeah. Sorry. Um, uh, you kind of disappeared for a second. Um, who had someone who had depression and 
also finding myself in this weird headspace and doing most meetings like this and how everything in that in the film world shifted uh and then once i finished the film covid was still happening so every film festival that i started to get into was like just most of them were dipping their toe into the hybrid world um, of actually reopening back into a theater mm -hmm. so my initial plan was to was was hoping to finish the film in 2020 and i'm so glad that i didn't because there were so many films that have just fallen through the cracks so many amazing films that just vanished because of of the festival experience wasn't there entirely and um as a filmmaker especially as an independent filmmaker you have you rely a lot on on showing up to these festivals and meeting other filmmakers and meeting people who can say like hey like you want to work on something so it was you know me and my room doing doing zoom interviews for festivals um so there was a lot of that uh which was kind of a bummer and a kind of a bummer it was but then the first where i really premiered the film was an in the first in-person festival that was happening it's a gigantic uh beautiful documentary film festival in Telluride, Colorado called Mountain Film. And Mountain Film, uh, I, 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 their, their know-how, their professionalism, uh, their taste level of documentaries, and I don't know if you've ever been to Telluride, but it's kind of like, I think, like a little weird mountain town. Um, and just exploring Telluride was cool and being able to show the film in person in front of an audience for the first time was also very uh, emotional for me as as well so it's uh i i certainly went through all of the phases of feeling hopeless feeling very depressed should i just quit this film should i chug along and see what happens and you know uh, luckily uh, i have such a like a solid tight-knit support group that you know, always cheered me on and the people who always believed in me, believed in me. And even when I, you know, didn't believe in myself along the way. Um, but then these, you know, these golden moments happen where it's like, I get an interview with Bill Gates. I get Zachary Quinto to narrate the film. I get Fenton and Randy at World of Wonder to executive to do so. It's like these things that kind of kept happening along the way happened. And then uh, it's such a, a such a strange feeling when you finish a film because you finish it and you kind of think to yourself, I think I'm done. I think I'm done. And you're done with that. And then there is this whole, you know, the afterlife of of a festival that or festival run that, you know, they don't teach you this. I mean, maybe that some film schools they do, but um, I can't say enough to other filmmakers that are making their own films on an independent level, you know, put aside a budget for festivals, um, put aside a budget for insurance, put aside a budget for travel, because I'll, I, I didn't do that with my first film and I racked up so much credit card debt. So this time around, I, I actually did that and it will save you a lot of headache in the end. And then if your film is great, and then you enter the world of of distribution and sales agents and 
um, that's currently where I am with yes, I am navigating this world and it's it's frustrating at times and again you you get to a point to where you think something's going to happen and you know a lot of companies like they don't want to they don't want to give the filmmaker anything like they want to say like we'll put our we'll slap our name on it and then congratulations um we'll take most of the profit and then we'll cut you the, the check at the end and but i also feel like that's shit that world is is shifting as well uh and i'm I'm also currently exploring sort of this self-distribution um, world of, of these companies who you basically sign up and uh, you can almost like a dating profile for your website and different. It's very decentralized in the way it's executed. Yeah, yeah. So, I think that's become a phenomenon in many, in many areas because I spoke with another filmmaker uh, a few like about a week ago i mean our conversation was mostly focused on bitcoin and cryptocurrency but we were talking about the decentralized aspect of it and how that could essentially be applied to the studio model because let's be honest studios are just now releasing franchise films and they're not yeah. bad they're good but at the same time smaller films you would have seen 10 years ago in the theater have a less likeliness have a less likely out outcome of being in those film in those theaters and even before 2020 i mean the fact that the irishman a scorsese film had a limited theatrical release is staunting because i mean it's not just martin scorsese it's in the area he operates creatively the most crime drama yeah yet a film like silence which is great an epic probably one of his more personal works in terms but it's not the subject you usually see from him that got a theatrical release in 2016 yeah and it's i, I was talking to a friend the other day and I'm like well, what are your what are your ultimate goals and dreams to for you yes i am and i said i honestly like i i don't care like i don't mind that i don't even care about the theatrical release like i i know that more eyes will be on it on streaming platforms. I mean, and that's just the truth. I mean, people have become accustomed to, I still love going to the movies. Um, and I did get to show it into some really cool theaters, but doing a theatrical release for a queer documentary, like it's, I'm, I mean, I live in this reality where I'm like, I know it's, you know, it's, it's very limited. So I'm not looking to, to sell a thousand tickets for, you know, someone to come to a theater and watch it, I would love for them to watch it in their own home and have a discussion around it uh, versus trying to just have it shown in the theater out of being being shown for the theater's sake. Same for me with this podcast. I'm not expecting it to be the next Joe Rogan experience or just because even though what fascinates me about his podcast is that it's just two people talking like human beings, which and you learn a lot more from that than watching just the news. You get better intellectual insight. And for me, this is just like an intellectual experiment and hopefully a creative one. And I don't know where it'll go. I mean, I hope more people, I just hope people that are involved in film can have these kind of discussions more, more openly rather than just, I don't know, I guess. Have you ever seen an interview of a filmmaker you really admire by someone who I wouldn't say, you, I would say they probably have the same tastes as you, but the questions and the way they approach them is kind of superficial to the point where you're not gaining any intellectual insight. Yeah, I mean, I, yes, all the time. And I think it's, I, I always put myself in the, the 
both people's shoes because sometimes if you are a fan like i'm like a big john waters fan mm-hmm. and i i would say like okay let me try to think of things that people haven't asked him a thousand times and that aren't that isn't out there and but also knowing john and like his his like what he will say and what he won't say and what i sorry i digress i absolutely know what you're saying um so it's it is kind of like that I guess I have the same feeling because uh, there's this interviewer, I don't know his name, but he's interviewed Christopher Nolan several times. And the moment, I mean, he didn't, it didn't bother me the way he interviewed him at first, but when he told him straight out that Tennant is an absolute, first off, I want to f- say thank you for giving me the time. I think Tennant is an absolute masterpiece. And look, I don't judge anybody for thinking that. I think it's a great film. It probably will be based on what the analysis it's garnered, but It was the way he approached it verbally that just made me realize there's no intellectual discourse going to be discussed here. I mean, I guess what what I would ask someone like Christopher Nolan and the topics he's discussed is the distortion of reality, what he feels about that, how that can be applied to real life. Because I was earlier this year, I mean, with all the craziness that's happened this year and all the uh, failures of institutions and kind of just like this pessimistic outlook we've had in politics or other institutional elements i i was watching the matrix and i kind of garnered a new understanding of what the idea of a simulation is i don't i mean i think the most stereotypical one is the brain in the jar theory but i think when you look at the idea of a simulation it's just a narrative a narrative can be weaved much like how how in a trial hearing facts can be manipulated or just construed to form a narrative to create mass opinions and I guess that's what fascinates me about Christopher Nolan's work. And that's what I'd ask him about rather than just kiss his ass. I mean, I don't hope I'm making sense of what I'm saying because. You you absolutely are. I mean, I mean, I I think I've seen this more applied to like, like very large celebrities where like the, the, whether the interviewer is nervous or just an asshole. Or a fanboy. Yeah. Yeah. But I have seen the ones where, you know, these, these, I'm trying to, I'm paraphrasing here, but the, there was this one uh like it was like scarlett johansson and she was in some film and he like asked the the male counterpart like a very like sort of serious question about the role and then it got to her and he said something like you know oh were you very uncomfortable you know in your costume was it too tight and she's like why are you asking me this like how is that relevant yeah she's like this is a real question she's like okay and she's kind of looking around the room and uh yeah, so it's, I think within within film, with everything, I think in life and sort of and with, with the Matrix, it's it's choice, you know, choices. And um, you can choose one or the other or many, um, but that doesn't necessarily mean one is right or wrong. It just means that, like, who's, who's the, the man behind the curtain or the woman behind the curtain? And what are they trying to say as well? And um, yeah, no, it's working in the film world is, is especially at a level like mine where it's like I'm in, in a very independent like one man band with like these group of people that I work with. Um, I find myself sometimes having a like a sense of like an overwhelmingly sense of like senses of choice, but I know I have to make one and 
then you start to question your own reality of being like, am I making the right decision? Are people going to like this? And well, at least the fact, I think the fact that it is a self-conscious choice at least does have some more validity to it than rather than the more traditional herd mentality and group think that can be very, because I think group think is incredibly dangerous regardless of what spectrum you're on, because I mean, even if you like identify yourself politically on one level, and even if you're probably in the more, more moral right, the fact that it is more group oriented, there's a danger to it because what if you end up disagreeing with some, some elements of what those, of what beliefs that group holds, and then they ostracize you. Yeah. And that's it, especially within film and documentary film. Uh, I can always see when a filmmaker is trying to say something with it or they have all, they're putting all of their opinions into it. Um, and what I've learned along the way over, you know, making a, two documentaries back to back for the past now 12 years is that I, I stand firm in this belief of don't talk about shit. You don't know if the answer is, if someone asks you a question um, and you don't know, don't pretend, you know, don't say and make some, something up to appease somebody because that creates confusion and misinformation and all of it. So um, I've, I've been doing Q and A's uh, for both Finding Kim and Yes I Am. You'll get the occasional, like once in a while, people who just wanna try to like fuck your world up where you're, you're up there, you got your mic, the microphone, you, you just showed your film and you're like, you know, people are asking questions like, you know, the usual, like, did you do this? What was your favorite part, blah, blah. And then occasionally you will get someone who will ask like the most, like trying to throw you off. And um, it, th that also exists within this world as well. And uh, I didn't find it so much with Yes I Am, but with Finding Kim, like I definitely felt a lot of the, I was, I mean, you know, I was, I'm a cis man making a, a film about a trans person. So, there was a lot of, um, of pushback about that, but I always looked at it like I'm making a film about my friend. Like I was friends with Kim for six years before I started even making Finding Kim. Um, but that was also a reality and something I, I didn't anticipate, but I, uh, I mean, now it's so obvious. What, what type of pushback did you receive for uh, the Rick Whalen story? If you don't mind me asking. Uh, it was a mixture of, of, of course, you're making a film about, you know, a rich gay white man. Um, there was that. Um, there was, do we need another queer story like this? Do we need a, a, another story about suicide? Um, you know, everyone always, everyone always has an opinion. And I think for the most part, though, I was able to to translate Rick's story into something that appeals, that informs, uh, and that also speaks to his truth, even as complicated and as mysterious as it was. And even there was a, I mean, you could, I felt like I could work on Yes I Am for, I could have worked on it for another three or four years, but I had reached an emotional threshold for myself and within the film that I'm like, I, can't, I feel like this is done and I can be done with this and I should probably move on to something else and let this sort of try to live and see where it goes. And the first time I ever showed it, 
um, on a test screening at the uh, Manchester Film Festival in uh, in the UK, it won. Like it won the whole festival, and I thought, wow, I like my own self doubt, my own worry, and you know, you finish something and you like put it out there, and then people respond to it, and it's the most beautiful, cool thing, and uh, and then people start to ask you questions that you didn't even think about along the way. So I knew I had something with it, and it's how you use it as well as a filmmaker and um, and what and how you use it to to make your next film too and I'm, I care so much about Rick and, and this film and I'm so proud of it in so many ways uh, and beca- and because it also changed me too that um, I owe it to myself too and to Rick and to everyone else that was involved to to really try to make this film like bubble up to the surface so everyone can see it because it's just it's just not there yet. Like it's, I'm still working on making that happen. What do you feel? I mean, when it comes to subjects like suicide and depression, which this film clearly tackles, I'm curious as to what you think people's misinterpretations of those things are, are still are in a sense. I mean, what do you think people misinterpret about depression or suicide in the current day? That it's not a real thing that it's that depression and, uh, is not like it's this thing that you don't have to get like you don't need a therapist you don't need to be medicated um you shouldn't seek out alternative treatments um i i have friends like this that that don't believe in in therapy or that you can just snap out of it if you want to and rick is a is a is a no longer living testament that you cannot just snap out of it. The, no. all, the money, the, all the money in the world will not make that happen for you, obviously. Mm. It's interesting that you bring that that you bring that up because my view on depression, even though I've never had, been suicidal, I've experienced depression. When my, and my personal view on it is that people st- still don't understand is that it's not necessarily sadness; it's pure numbness and. Yeah. That itself can be a daunting task. I have a, I actually have a friend who I keep anonymous because he wrote a book on suicide and he used a pseudonym because he was just, he didn't, doesn't want anybody to know on it, know his real name. And he self-published it and he asks me just to bring it up, but I've read some of it and it's fascinating because it's not like something like, I mean, I guess even with those books, he was very skeptical for a long time about doing it because one thing I've, I've, when it comes to a subject like suicide on, on books, I feel that's like an error to be capitalized on, especially as in the self-help model, which is something that has kind of annoyed me to a bit because I mean, I'm skeptical of self-help books, not all of them. Some are very useful, but it feels like even that's an industry where you can use subjects as, as very delicate as suicide to capitalize on. It is. And I, I touch on this very, it's, I put it in the film very briefly when uh, in the reenactments uh, where um, Rick is reading a book. Uh, Rick actually went out and bought that book. Um, Which book? It's uh, the name is escaping me. Um, I'll email it to you. I'll email you a link, but Oh, yes, please. I I actually, but I was sorry about that because I actually thought that you had mentioned earlier and I had forgotten. 
My, oh no, but this book was very controversial because it is basically a, not a how-to guide on how to take your own life, but to do it properly um, in a way that will help others transition with your transition. Um, and Rick went out and bought that book and highlighted chapters and different parts and uh you know it's so layered and and complex with you know with with someone taking their own life and you know rick was someone who if there was a problem no matter what it was he would create a, you know a, a hypothesis for each part of of the journey and the plan and it's like how is this pen constructed? It's like, well, you know, first we need to find out where the ink is. Like, that's how he looked even at his death. Um, that's, and just to give you the, some insight into how his brain worked, like that's that's how it worked. Uh, so when he decided that I'm, I'm done here, he tried to do it in the right way, even though, you know, there's, there is, I guess, no right way, but. You think he was doing that as a way of making the emotional separation of his of his own demise more practical because yeah i guess you could say because i'm a big fan of the blade runner films and one thing that those movies have taught me about those replicants is that in many ways i because one misconception we had was that they're robots when really they're just artificial human beings who are superior to human being in every sense intelligence physicality i mean they're synthetic but when you think about it the human being is much more robotic than people assume. Even the idea of the self is just an idea. It's not something objective. The idea of you is just an idea you've constructed over your experiences. Absolutely. Well, look, look, look I mean, look at, look at our lives and, you know, when you want to change something about yourself, as simple as it may seem, or like when you write it down on paper, it seems so simple, but when you wake up every day and you get in a routine and you do the same thing and you're comfortable and say like, I want to, you know, for an alcoholic, it's like, I want to quit drinking. It's like, it's not just as easy as I'm not going to open up the bottle anymore. It's, it's this very methodical thing that's worked over time. It may be based in your DNA. Um, there are so many variables that affect the day to day and changing that is extremely difficult. You, it's also interesting that you mentioned this book and when you send it to me, I'll, I'll definitely look at it, but it, I wouldn't say it's exactly similar to the book my friend wrote, but he, he made it clear to me when he talked to me about it because he wanted to share, he wanted my thoughts on it. He told me it was just, it wasn't a how-to book or how to get over depression or conquer suicidal thoughts so much as, I mean, I guess I'll spoil a little. It's like a collection of entries of his thoughts just so people can get and they're not telling people how to get through the process some from what i've read so far so much as just a way of exploring him and maybe it can help people ex with the same the same problems explore themselves yeah i guess I would, I, yeah i i would be interested to read it because reading this book it's not it's not like it's it's dark it doesn't read like that it reads like uh what does he say in Beetlejuice? He's like, this reads like stereo instructions, like hmm? the, handbook for the, the handbook for the recently deceased. It reads like stereo instructions. It This book kind of reads like that. Hmm. Um, it's, it's sort of neither good nor bad. 
uh, and that's the author's approach to it. However, it is was controversial, and depending on how you look at it, but through making a film about Rick's life, like I understand, I understand suicide better. I understand wanting to take your own life in a way that, for certain people, and this may sound controversial, but like for certain people, it's like they actually can get help and then for others like there isn't help and um when i lived in washington they had this uh um death with dignity uh that happened while i lived there and where you know you're say you have really terminal cancer and you can opt you can opt out but the people had to vote it in the people voted it in which is i think it's still one of the very few states that has this has this where it's you know, when Dr. Kevorkian went through his whole trial and all of that stuff, it's like very, it's very dotted line to all of that. I still don't get how that's controversial because at the end of the day, I think the idea, I think that when it comes to something like, like people that are opposed to that, it's like more moral virtue signaling rather than, yeah. than, yeah. than dignity. Because I mean, I, I'm, again, I wouldn't, I would never advocate for someone to kill themselves, but at the same time, I believe you shouldn't stop someone from doing it in a sense that you have to let them decide for themselves that if they have see value in their own life, because at the end of the day, yeah, you can stop them for the moment, but if they're unable to find the pattern, like the source of the pattern that led them to have those thoughts so they can see value in their lives, you're really not helping them. Yeah, I understand you're being empathetic and compassionate, but if you don't understand the root of their own problems or even let them find the root of their own, their own internal suffering, you're not, you're still not doing them any help. And I do believe in that death by dignity because okay, can you imagine like getting old to an age where you're just physically incapable of taking care of yourself and you no. have someone taking care of you? I couldn't. No, it's, that sounds like a night. That sounds like a nightmare to me. I would, I would, much, yeah, I would much rather be, uh, Go out on your own terms. Yeah, go out on my own terms. And that doesn't mean in like a very messy way. It just means like in a way that I choose and it has nothing to do with anyone else. And it even um, illustrates some level of your humanity to you. Basically, says, I am a human being because you're making, you are making the self-conscious choice as an affirmation of your identity. And even though it's coming to an end, you are still giving it some finiteness in those final moments. And I think there is some level of self-respect in that. Absolutely. And, and I mean, Mike Schaefer, who was Rick's partner, says it in the film. He's like, help us all around. Why does that name sound familiar, Mike Schaefer? Um, it, does, it does have a sort of a ring to it. But uh, yeah, Mike was Rick's partner for a very long time. Um, and Rick had a, a, this incredible, incredible support system. And... Um, that also included Bill Gates and Paul Allen. Um, it's unfortunate that I didn't get to talk to Paul because um, Paul was closer to Rick. Um, than Bill Gates? Uh, than Bill Gates in many ways. Um, but we, we spent like a year trying to find time. And then I, we had finally locked a date. And I wake up one morning and my news alert says Paul Allen has died. And so... I didn't get that part of the story. And I've also gotten feedback of saying like, how could you not talk about Paul? I'm like, well, I, I would have been making it up. Like I would have, like I had, you know, I tried all the avenues of like trying to talk to like Paul's sister and 
but at the end of the day, there was enough in Rick's journals about them that I was able to make it into a cohesive narrative that could carry, that, that was a film. Um, I mean, this really could have been like a 10 hour film, of course, but it's, uh, I'm, I'm grateful that I got Bill because even getting Bill was a very long, very uh, labyrinth process of people and lawyers and stuff like that. So may I ask you, what is your personal impression of Bill Gates? And I'm not asking uh, this as a judgment because I, with all the news surrounding him, I'm curious myself as to what you think of him, especially now, since we also discussed the idea of simulation and the idea of a narrative being weaved up. What are your impressions of him and, and what's going on around him at the current moment? And if that's shifted your views on the man you spoke with? Uh, no, not shifted my views at all. I mean, I, I grew up in, I mean, I grew up, I was 14 when I got a computer in 1995 and Bill was very much like a part of this, like part of my teenage years. Like he was this figurehead of this gigantic corporation that put a PC on everyone's, you know, home and stuff. And so I knew him from that and being of course, very wealthy and being this philanthropist with the Gates foundation. And, but also like sort of always following his career with different AIDS organizations and, um, but when the moment came to when I realized I'm like, oh, wow, he's going to be in the film and uh, being interviewed, it was, I think, interesting on, on a few levels because he, it, you know, he's a busy guy. So it's like he was looping this in with a, a, like a bunch of other interviews. So it wasn't just my, my yes, I am interview. He was talking to see it, you know, MSNBC and CNN and all these other spots. And he was also working on, he had his crew working on, um, he has this Netflix uh, documentary about himself. So they were also working on that at the same time. But when we started talking about Rick, he sort of lit up in this way that I found like everyone around him kind of was like, oh my gosh, we, and even the people that were very close said like, we haven't seen Bill like this really ever. And I thought about that after the fact, because these people have been working with him for so long. And I thought that the, I kind of like sort of figured out the reason why is like, I wasn't talking about Microsoft. I wasn't talking about money. I wasn't talking about organizations. I wasn't talking about philanthropy. I was talking about a friend that he met in high school and something that they started that they didn't know if it was going to work or not. And it, uh, they were very, I had a lot of personal questions that um, I couldn't use uh, because, just because, and, but he, he definitely became a lot more animated throughout my, the questions about Rick versus everything else. Um, and it showed me, it was like, this, this is still a person who, who cares and like, uh, but he is on this gigantic platform that, um, that I, I will never understand. And uh, I think Bill has done incredible work throughout the course of his career. And I mean, let's like be honest, like we wouldn't be sitting here talking to each other probably right now. I mean, maybe, maybe not like through this medium, but um, also someone who is a genius level brain.
Mm, that's very fascinating. And uh, well, I, I hope I wasn't getting too personal because I, I don't really know how to feel regarding all the, the, the discussions around him and his and property management, because I don't know, I just feel like it's too muddled a storm to get a full idea of what the truth is. So I can't make it. Absolutely, it absolutely is. It's like when you're, when you're someone say like that famous or that rich, it's like, you know, somebody like, like, like Madonna or Mark Zuckerberg, Mark Zuckerberg or Santa Claus. It's like that level of, you can't, you can't escape it. And no matter how much you try to explain yourself, um, you're never going to be able to because people will always have opinion of who you are, what you are, what you do, how much money you have, the whole shebang. So yeah, that itself has become a topic of discussion just because another rich white entrepreneur. That itself is becoming controversial all of a sudden. Yeah, it's it's something that I was aware of going in. I'm still aware of very much coming out of it, but I would say Bill and Bill's team um, have been so supportive of this film and like wanting to see it happen and come to life. And uh, in other ways, you know, it's, you know, you send out an email thinking, oh, this person's going to respond and they never do, or it takes them weeks. Uh, Bill and his team, they, they were always right on top of it and always offering suggestions. And uh, I don't know, there, there was, a, it, I, could feel, I could feel a heart there behind it all. Like it wasn't bullshit. I felt the same thing when I saw, uh, listened to this interview. Uh, I don't know if you follow Lex, Lex Friedman, the mm -hmm. Lex Friedman podcast. Well, he had Mark Zuckerberg on there a few months ago. And I mean, my views on Mark Zuckerberg were kind of a little bit cynical based on the all the data problems with Facebook. And although I don't agree with, I still didn't end up agreeing with many of the views he had on the podcast. I did feel that I sensed a good person there that does have good intentions, even though I think those good intentions are, I'll be honest, a little bordering on delusion and a little too much idealism for myself to believe. Yeah. I could sense that they were at least they had some sincerity to them, even though I think he's wrong in his approach. Yeah, it's, it's also generational too. I mean, it's gotta be because, you know, these are generations of, of people who in tech and, you know, Microsoft, when it was in sort of its, say, heyday in the 90s. They couldn't have um, predicted the consequences of. No, yeah, it's, and what, I mean, there's, there's got to be a movie that's like that. I'm thinking, for whatever reason, like, Ex Machina, like, pops up into my head of, you know, this, we get to this level of experimentation that suddenly goes awry, and it can lead to some sort of global catastrophe. Or even, even it's a psychological cross, uh, crisis because uh, in listening, because Lex Friedman works in technology, he works at MIT or he's worked for MIT and he, he's brought up AI several times in the idea, like, will we ever reach a point where we consider the feelings of an artificial intelligence? I'm sure that we will. I mean, if the world, <laughs> I mean, not to sound so cynical, if the world lasts that long, but it, I think that there will be a thing as AI rights and 
it will it will just it's it's how things are going i mean and how the speed of of technology and how things shift and, and move so fast day to day it's um and also the connected to like the, the like the theory of, of time and how time feels like it's so quick these days and um i think that i connect it for myself in a way that is uh because we have access to so much information at our fingertips, um, that time just feels like that. And uh, whereas before, I mean, at least growing up, I mean, I grew up in, in Dayton, Ohio in the eighties where it's like, I was, you know, had to go to the library or look it up in the encyclopedia and very limited in scope, but. Time felt much more, I guess, much more appreciated and less stress, it had less stress to it, even though you had, it felt like it was moving slower. I don't know. I guess I, I think what you've been saying is I once saw this channel pursuit of wonder and how it basically reversed the idea of that expression. Life is short, but, and he reversed it. Like life is much longer than we think. We just want more out of it. It's more of a self-conscious desire for more because of our perception of time. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a very indulgent feeling. And I, I actually, said this uh to my husband the other day and it was almost like out of feeling like like i'm not i just went through this big move and you know i'm still working on yes i am and i'm starting all these other projects and it's like and he said he's like what more do you want i was like i want more like i was like i want more and then i almost like had this moment of like shut up aaron like why are you stop smell the roses like look around you look at what you have look at the friends that you have and the people that you care about like what's actually important in your life and it's those moments where it was just like i don't know i when i said it out loud i was like kind of thinking ooh, why did i just say that but mm, it's interesting you bring that up because i guess i can relate to that myself because when it comes to my writing or even just my 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 desire to read and learn more i feel i treat it like some compulsion i need to satisfy like i'll never get enough and i think i think you have to make peace with it at some extent that you'll never truly be satisfied because i think that there's something cynical about saying you should be satisfied with what you've done so far because that's almost impossible yeah. we're social animals we're gonna need we can't exactly stop it's more like it's similar to our need to survive in a sense yeah. And also the, the, yes, yes, that absolutely. And the feeling of, of needing to keep up with, with technology, even it's like, I, I couldn't imagine being a really old person right now, being somebody who say you're, you know, you're in your nineties and you're still here, you're with it, you're able-bodied, but you've never it, picked up a smartphone. Yeah. It's like, that's gotta be so wild and isolating at the same time, because you know, you probably should. And, but yet it's intimidating on so many levels. And I, I mean, sometimes I can like, you know, barely cut into like, you know, the, the monstrous pieces of plastic that they put hard drives into. I'm like, how am I ever going to be an old person? That's like, I need my kitchen scissors. Exactly. And in many ways, it this advancement of technology in many in a lot of ways has redefined it kind of brings the term that term cyborg to life more because when you think about it we rely on these devices so much that they're part of our day-to-day -day lives 
almost like I'm like in the uh, the old old school notion we had of a cyborg because the more traditional notion was just someone with a mechanical limb or a mechanical appliance permanently uh, lodged inside their body but now I mean I mean although these devices aren't lodged inside of us they are pretty much like something that we depend on on a daily basis that they might as well be integrated in our bodies might as well have them attached to us were you a fan of black mirror I haven't seen Black Mirror yet. Oh, shit. You should definitely put that on your list. Uh, so Black Mirror, uh, it's an English show that it's kind of like the best way I could describe it is kind of like a Twilight Zone, like a new age Twilight Zone. Um, but each episode uh, is, is different from the last. So like new actors, new storyline. Uh, I think they're 45 minute episodes. And there's this one episode, and it's 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 fascinating because they don't really put you in the future as much as you think, but they insert this this element of technology where you're like, wow, it still looks like this, it, but it doesn't look like you know the Jetsons. But there's this element of technology that exists, and there's this one episode of this guy who um, is trying to. Everyone has a camera in their eye. It's mm -hmm. like, and you can like rewind and go back but he starts obsessing that his wife is cheating on him. And he's like going back to the, this one Christmas party and like trying to freeze frame it. And I, I won't spoil it for you, but it's, it really it's makes- It's kind of like the sequence in Blade Runner when he's like looking at yeah. the scene and, and zooming in on specific moments. Yeah. You look at re-evaluating the forensic evidence. Yeah. It's interesting you bring that up and how that there was some level of present day I guess this is me butchering English language, the present dayness in that, because have you ever followed the work of the graphic? I mean, are you into graphic novels? I'm not. Well, the one of my favorite graphic novelists, Alan Moore, said that when you're doing science fiction, you're not really talking about the future. You're talking about the present in some sense. And I, I guess with what you described, Black Mirror does make sense because Look at our, our smartphones. They operate better than regular cameras. And not only have they reduced the costs that cameras would have naturally done in, in the 90s or 80s, especially with developing the cameras, but they've given, given us this limited access to go back to certain moments without having to just flip through, physically flip through pictures or redevelop pictures that we had in an old camera. Yeah, it's, it is. It's, it. It's, and we're at this crossroads of, of, of time that where children and teens now, they're like, like, I'm a bit, I'm a big paper person. Like I'm big, like notebooks. I got tons of pens. I'm big, like uh, cards, ephemera, like that kind of stuff. Uh, and now all of that has shifted and gone away almost to a point where like, that's almost, depressing. Yeah. It is, like that itself in and of itself is depressing. And it's like, where do we go from here? It's like, I don't know. I, I have no idea. But to sort of tie this back to all with Rick and what I'm realizing is like, mm -hmm. you know, Bill and Paul, they, you know, Rick's took the sideline from Microsoft after so long. It was, he realized he wanted to take his focus, his money, his energy and focus it onto act, making actual uh, public societal change. And he did that. He did that. Um, you know, with organizations like, you know, these are places like GLAD and ACT UP before they were, they were like still grassroots organizations. When no one else was funding them, Rick Weiland was funding them. 
so when I say choice and we all have choice in our life, that's what I mean. And Rick made this, this conscious choice to focus on things where he knew he could make an impact. And he did that. In many, I, I don't know if I, if it would be degrading to compare Rick to this other figure, but you, the documentary you made sounds very similar to this documentary on Hulu. I saw a few years ago called Batman and Bill which focuses on the work of Bill Finger, who was a co-collaborator with Bob Kane. But when you watch the documentary, it's immensely tragic because you realize he was actually a freelancer who came up with many of the core concepts of the character. And that Bob Kane just initially just, if you looked at Bob Kane's original design for that character, it looks nothing that like what we see now. And even in the many interpretations of a character like Batman and and Bill Finger was not credited as a co-creator until 2016. Like uh, if you've ever seen any Batman film at the end of every title yeah. sequence, it says Batman created by Bob Kane. Huh. Never mentioned Bill Finger until 2016. And then you learn the true, his true story. He ended up dying in poverty. Uh, I'm not, I don't think he, I don't think he died by suicide. I think he died just natural causes, but it's an interesting documentary and it's just basically about that silent person who just didn't raise up, who didn't say much and just ended up being put to the sidelines yet you realize he was a complete genius. Yeah. It is a bummer when, you know, it, because you, you don't have the biggest ego or, or voice in the room that you can easily, but you can also be the smartest or the, the, the have this incredible talent and yet that can all just fall by the wayside because of because although in this case i guess i mean with rick at least he had more people that cared about him with bob kane doing what he did i just felt yeah. very parasitic yeah i mean he sounds like i i'm thinking akin to sort of like these old hollywood stars like i i'm like like bella lugosi who you know died alone in this like shitty east hollywood apartment it's like these people these these systems who made so much money off of his face and merchandise and yet he died by himself in a crummy apartment it's like it's it's the world doesn't make sense a lot of the time mm. well and uh i guess i guess on a final note uh, are there any other project i mean i don't know how much time you have if you have any time to discuss any projects you're currently working on if you're at liberty to discuss them to some extent yeah yeah um i would say i can i can talk about let's see maybe two or three uh i'm working on a film based on true events not a documentary but based on true events about a friend of mine whose father was one of the uh, first diagnosed cases of aids in uh, small town texas 1982 or 83 um he was in a motorcycle accident uh, and uh, had a blood transfusion and contracted HIV. And then um, the story is sort of told from my, my friend's perspective and her mom's perspective and this life that they lived because of this like one incident that happened. And um, so I'm, I'm still figuring out beginnings middles and ends talking to her mom i mean and these were i mean they were studied by the cdc for so long because neither of them contracted it so it was like trying to also protect her daughter from 
you know, small minds and small, it's like this whole thing. So it's like, it's very, it's very deep. Um, but working on that, uh, working on a documentary called uh, Cozy, which we've shot a teaser for about a uh, trans uh, correctional officer in the men's facility in downtown Seattle. Mm -hmm. uh, lots of complicated family dynamics. Uh, her son is producing with me. Um, so it's a, it's a story about someone who, you know, transitions later in life and comes home one day and says, Hey fam, guess what? And what happens after that? But also they, they work in this, in the men's jail in downtown Seattle. So, um, I'll send you the teaser for that. So you can oh, see thank it. You. Um, and then I'm working on, uh, to balance it out, uh, a possible travel show with a friend of mine who, uh, takes people on these very curated trips around the world to help change their lives in positive ways. And what part, I mean, in anything specific, um, st still trying to figure that out. I don't know if this is a documentary or if it's a series, but he basically chooses six places around the world um, mm. each year and curates these very fantastic trips and in scope some of them are are very relaxed and spa-like and then others are like you're hiking through Patagonia and you're going up the mountain and we're camping in the snow it's like it, this like this balance of of um what is good for you may not be good for me and what's going to make you feel better may not make me feel better. So I'm trying to find the heart behind this. And I mean, he is the heart behind it, but also like, um, yeah, I, it's, it's still in the works. I would say like very pre, 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 pre-production, but, and within all of that, uh, raising the money, which is also its own, its own job. Are you primarily focused on documentary-based work? Are you have you ever thought of working more on feature life? No, I, yeah, I, I definitely as much as I love documentaries, uh, I I want to challenge myself and continue to push myself in a direction that um, I would love to do something very funny. I would I'm a huge horror film fan. Like I would love to try something to do something uh, scary. Um, no, if you want, I wrote a horror script and I could send that your way and just get you if you if you think it's interesting. Yeah, please. I'll I'll send you mine and you send me yours. No, absolutely. And I'll be yes, be sure show share some of the stuff you mentioned about your friends and I'll share you that book about from my friend. I mean, you won't know his name because he used a pseudonym and the title is a little cynical, but I get from where he's coming from because like me, he does feel that the self-help industry some some offers are great, but whenever I think one one thing I I actually mentioned to him is, do we really need another person quoting Marcus Aurelius or Seneca? Like they can't, which is something that is constantly done in the self help industry to an annoying degree. Yeah, that it actually turned me off of someone like I don't know if you've ever heard of Ryan Holiday, even though he is a great writer. I I was skeptical at first. Yeah, I I haven't, but. Um... I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I'm sort of on the same page with you with self-help books. Uh, I'm very much into uh, in-person help. Um, 
another thing I've been sort of working on, and that's also like very personal. I mean, I guess I could talk about it. I, I should sort of get over it is uh, I've been doing um, through depression, anxiety, I was on like a traditional antidepressant for years, and I decided that I wanted to try something else and good get off of it. And I did. And I started to explore um, ketamine therapy. Um, there were these ketamine clinics popping up in Seattle. And uh, it's changed my life so profoundly and in ways where like I got off the antidepressant, like unlocked this part of my brain that I didn't even know existed. So I'll leave it at that. Uh, I, agree, I agree with you getting off antidepressants i've never tried any but i've seen some people who have just well the damage it it does just or even the over dependence that uh, i don't think that the people who came up with these antidepressants are have your best interest especially when a lot of them just list the worst side effects possible no it's it made me it my thing was never quite depression it was anxiety and it helped with that but it also made me not feel like I wasn't happy and I wasn't sad either. And I wasn't anxious, but I was also just kind of existing. Like I wanted, there was no spark behind anything I was doing. And I, I realized that it would, this was making me do that. And I didn't want to go down the rabbit hole and be like, well, you should try this or you should try this other one or you should try this other one. I, it's like a, a starburst. Yeah, it, it was all going to be the same underneath, you know. Mm, it's very, and that sounds a lot like what I've, I've, I've recognized because uh, I've seen the overdependence to a degree where it's not over the people that have responded are now over dramatic so much as they have like this fixation with needing something more. And that's, I guess, what I've seen from the people I've known that have depended on antidepressants. And that's, I guess, where my skepticism lies. Well, again, well, though, I guess. On a final, I'm on, I guess this is the final question I have. Like, where can people find out to learn more about you and your work? I mean, I know I've seen the links you have on your profiles, but just in case you want to add anything else of where people can find you, reach out to you, or even just learn more about your work overall. Yeah. Um, uh, well, first, I just updated the sites, uh, rickwhelan.com. Um, I'm pretty active on Instagram, Aaron underscore bear. Um, I, you can email me at Aaron at bearcollective.org. I'm friendly. I'll always respond. Um, Vimeo, uh, Bear Collective on there as well. So, um, yeah, it's. Oh, would you? Oh, yes. Um, I'll be sure to send those my way. I'll add them in the episode description and I'll send you the stuff I mentioned, including my friend's book. And, uh, I'll let you know when the episode is uploaded. And again, Aaron, thank you for the time you've given me today and for being very being very open about a lot of personal subjects I'm sure are very delicate for you to discuss, especially when you, based on what you talked about, Rick, it seemed like a very strong uh, emotional experience to go through. It, it, it definitely was like, and that's, it's no bullshit. Like it, it definitely changed me in, in so many ways and that I think I'm still processing and um, and I think that the only way through with all of this is to, you know, even as a filmmaker and making a film like this, it's like just to, to also connect to it and to be honest about my experience and what I was going through and where I am now. Where can I find find the Rick Whalen story? Uh, it's not out yet. 
it's that's what I'm I'm still uh, trying to find. Uh, oh God, a I, to live. So um, stupid for asking because I only saw the tr- just the the trailer and I thought that it would been out for a while. No, no, no. It's it's still still trying to find its home. It, it finished its festival run. Um, I sent you the screener. Um, it should that's in your email. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, you can watch it there. But yeah, I would say within the next six months it should be out and once it's officially out i'll definitely follow up with you well again aaron thank you for giving me the time of your day and uh i appreciate everything you've told me and uh i wish you the best in what in your process and uh i'll let you know when the episode is uploaded i'll send you my the material i mentioned and you send me whatever you feel you could be helpful sounds good well thank you for reaching out no problem I'm very glad to to have met and spoken with you. You too. Um, We'll talk soon. You have a nice day. You too.